Hey, welcome to our eighth and final session of our overview of the New Testament. I'm Kevin McMillan from Mile 2 Church, and thanks for joining us today. We're going to be looking at the general epistles, Hebrews to Jude, and of course we're going to be looking at their book of Revelation, which is always interesting. Uh, there are some notes. If you'd like to download, you can go uh, to the link that's on the webpage there, and it will help you to follow along, and you'll have some information to keep for future reference as well. So, last week we talked about the Pauline epistles, so we've got an understanding of what epistles are. Today we're just going to look at the general epistles. They're called general, by the way, because they're not written to a specific person or a specific church. All of Paul's epistles have very specific people, either the Corinthians or Titus or Timothy, but these are not. And there are at least four authors here. And because of that, there is a wide variety of style, wide variety of content and themes, and even structure as well. So let's look at the authors. <clears throat> Both James and Jude were Jesus' brothers. Neither of them were actual apostles. They weren't disciples at the time, but obviously they became very involved in the early church. And uh, the letter from James and from Jude come from these two gentlemen. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. We read about that in Acts chapter 15. Now, there was another James who was an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. James, that James was the uh, brother of John, the two of them, remember, known as the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. John, that James, was martyred. And we read about that in Acts chapter 12, so a little bit earlier. That's um, John's brother. So this James, again, is Jesus' brother. His name is actually not James, it's actually Jacob in Hebrew, Yaakov. And, uh, but as names get translated from one language to another, they tend to change, and over the centuries, names change as well. And so by the time the 1500s came along, when Bibles began being translated into English, it came out as James. Now, Jude, his brother, is uh, unusual as, and in terms of authoring in the New Testament. He's the only author in the New Testament that quotes from the Apocrypha, or from apocryphal writing. He actually quotes from a book called the Book of Enoch that had been written perhaps a couple of hundred years before that. Now, we don't see the Book of Enoch as being canonical. It is not authoritative, probably some good writing in it, but James nonetheless refers to it. And again, he's the only one to do that. Now, Peter and John, the other two uh, authors that we know of, of these general epistles, they were disciples. John, again, uh, John, son of Zebedee, son of thunder, and then Peter, Simon Peter, they were with Jesus right from the very, very beginning. Peter was believed to have lived in Rome, <clears throat> and after the crucifixion, after the resurrection of the early church, he eventually moved to Rome and ministered there for the rest of his life, and that he was, he was martyred there. He was executed under Nero for his faith as well. Both of Peter's letters cover a variety of topics, but it's interesting, they're written from perspectives that you might find uh, contradictory, uh, joy and suffering. He talks a lot about the joy of the Lord and the joy of the Christian life, but he also talks about all of the suffering in the Christian life. Again, some of that, we aren't, we in North America, if you are in North America, we don't feel that quite so much, at all as they would have in the early church. And yet, and so it was a major theme in Peter's letters. He also talked about glory, the glory of God and the glory that we experience as Christians. 
Now, when it comes to John, some scholars believe that the three letters were written by someone different than the one who wrote the Gospel of John. This doesn't necessarily make sense. I only say that because you might hear this in uh, some of your reading. Uh, that is not necessarily the case because there's a very similar vocabulary, very similar style, uh, and a very similar content, particularly 1 John. Uh, we read the concept of love so much through 1 John, we read it so much in the Gospel of John. If you compare the first three verses of 1 John with the first few verses of the Gospel of John, quite a striking similarity there as well. And so it, it seems logical and very reasonable to attribute these three books to the Gospel of John as well. John's writings, as we have mentioned, are all later than the other New Testament writings. His Gospel and possibly the book of Revelation were written in the 80s or 90s, probably more likely the 90s, whereas everything else was written in the 50s and 60s. We don't know for sure why this is, but what you'll also notice in the book of Acts, John is there, and especially in the first few chapters when it's centered in Jerusalem, but when it starts moving out, we see less and less of John. And we don't hear a lot about John for a while until all of a sudden these writings, his Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation show up later in the century. Why is this? We can't be sure, but if you think back to the Gospels, when John was standing at the foot of the cross, and there he was, who did he have beside him? Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus looked down at Mary and, and he said, Mother, behold your son. And then he looked at John and said, behold your mother. And it says, from then on, John took Mary into his home and cared for her. Now, we don't know how long Mary lived. She wouldn't have been an old woman at that point. She would be middle-aged, certainly. But she could well have lived another 20 or 30 years. And it's quite possible that that was one of John's major occupations, was taking care of the mother of Jesus Christ. That would be a <laughs> worthwhile occupation. And so perhaps he didn't get to his writing because of that. We're not sure. But again, as we mentioned in the Gospels, his writings are often from a different perspective than some of the others, and that might par partially because he had experienced 20 or 30 more years of history than the other disciples had, and so he had simply had a different view of things. His letters are very warm, uh, very encouraging. They talk a lot about love, as we say, but they call for a very strong response, and that response is obedience to the commands of Christ. So it's, again, an interesting juxtaposition here. What I'd like to do to finish off talking about the general epistles in this overview, as I did with the Apostle Paul, I'd just like to give you uh, a description of each of these epistles in one sentence. Hebrews is a logical and systematic treatise on Christ as supreme over all over excuse me over all Old Testament figures the new covenant is better than the old covenant and our need to remain faithful despite persecution James written more in the style of proverbs than a systematic essay the theme of James is faith that works 1 Peter contains three main messages our riches in Christ live the Christian life well, and expect and endure suffering. Second Peter, in this farewell discourse, Peter reminds us of many great truths and urges us to look ahead to the end of the age. First John, 
how to know you are in the faith, love and obedience. Second John, a brief encouragement to walk in Christ's commandments and to beware of false teachers. Third John, John encourages the readers to practice hospitality. And then Jude, a poetic, image-filled warning against evil and against those who practice and teach it. So, those are the general epistles in one sentence. If you like a copy, uh, you'll find a link on the webpage. You can download that and you can have that as well. All right, now we move on to the book of Revelation. Some of you may consider this the most interesting book in the Bible. It is certainly unique in all of Scripture, certainly unique in the New Covenant, New Testament, but it's also pretty unique when you consider all of Scripture together. It's unique in its style, and it is unique in its content as well. But we still have to look at it keeping in mind the original audience. It was written to first century Christians, okay? First, the first century church. And I've heard it put this way, and I think it's helpful. It was not written to us, but it was written for us. Very much it was written for the church, because we have so much to learn from it, but it was actually written to seven churches. And uh, because of that, we have to look at it from a, this, this, a little bit of an external viewpoint, but then when it gets into some of the main material, we see, okay, this is absolutely for us. We are very much involved in this. This book is often called the Apocalypse. You might hear someone saying, I read the Apocalypse over the last few days, and they're simply talking about the book of Revelation. The Greek word Apocalypse means, believe it or not, Revelation, or the uncovering of something, pulling back the curtain. Really, that's what Revelation is all about, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Before we um, get right into the book of Revelation, I want to talk about genre. Remember, when we were talking about the Gospels, we talked about genre and how important it is to understand the genre you're reading so that you can understand what you're reading in a better context. Well, the book of Revelation is kind of unique in its genre. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about a particular genre that was really popular at this time, and it was called the genre of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. This was written for about 300 years around the time of Christ, a little before and, and a little bit after. And it was a very, very specific genre. Now, the book of Revelation, even though it's called Apocalypse, it is not, strictly speaking, apocalyptic genre, but it shares a lot of characteristics. So it's not the same, but it shares a lot. You remember from your high school math, the union of sets. You know, there weren't perfect union, but there were, there were shared some characteristics. And so for us to understand Revelation, we actually need to understand the genre of apocalyptic literature. It was very commonly written in times of persecution and times of suffering. And the basic message that was given was that you just hang on to the end, something good is going to happen. Your rescue is coming. Yes, you're going through a hard time now, but your rescue is coming. That's basically the message of apocalyptic literature. So in one sense, you could say it was a form of escapism. Because things are looking horrible now, just hang on. Everything's going to be fine in the future. And um, because of that, it sort of ignored the current circumstances. It said, don't focus on the current circumstances. It's just your rescue is coming. And really, it was only in, intended to bring encouragement, to bring comfort 
to bring consolation. Whether it did that or not, it's hard to say. And in apocalyptic literature, strictly apocalyptic literature, it was not describing real events. It was simply saying that the rescue was on the way. And everything was described in very uh, image-laden terms, metaphorical terms. And so it wasn't describing anything that actually happened. It was simply an encouragement to hang on. That was a very simplified version, but that was really the purpose of apocalyptic literature. And some other characteristics of apocalyptic literature, we see supernatural revelations. God told me this, I saw the sky opened up and this happened. Very common. Another common thing is symbolism. A lot of symbolism. And you know, this often makes it difficult for modern readers to understand some apocalyptic literature because the people at the time would have known the symbols better than we do. So that, that takes some study. Now, let's, let's apply this just for a second to the, the book of Revelation or any apocalyptic style literature. There's some in Daniel, some in the end of Matthew, and then the book of Revelation all have some uh, literature that, or writing that is sort of an apocalyptic style. Usually when we read the Bible, we want to find the most plain meaning, the most obvious meaning we can find. When you read the epistles, you want to find what, what does he say and what does he mean? And usually he pretty much said what he means. Sometimes it takes study to understand cultural differences and that kind of thing, or when Jesus says certain things. But you just want to find the plainest, most obvious meaning. However, when you read apocalyptic literature, that's not how you read it. It's like poetry. And again, if, you're, if poetry isn't your specialty, you may remember from uh, your study of poetry that you always had to look for the meaning behind the words, you know, the underlying meaning. It's not just what it says, it's what is it referring to? What is it symbolically or metaphorically referring to? Apocalyptic literature is the same thing. And so the symbolism, we have to see it's symbolism. It's not literalism. That's important. Another uh, characteristics of apocalyptic literature is pessimism. You're in a horrible situation. Things are looking bad. And that's, again, that was the, the, the one of the reasons for it being written is to acknowledge you're bad and you're in a bad way, but things are going to turn out well. And so also what we see in apocalyptic literature is the triumph of God. There was only one solution and it was not a human solution that had to come from God. Another interesting thing, almost all uh, apocalyptic literature uh, was written under a pseudonym. In other words, the writer didn't say who he was, he gave some other name. It would usually be a name from the distant past, like there's the apocalypse of Noah, or the apocalypse of Enoch, or the book of Enoch, or the book of Noah, or, or, or Moses, some of these long dead figures. Now, this was written maybe 100 BC or even 100 AD, but the author said this was written by Noah. Okay, whatever. And in because of that, the way it was written, it was as if Noah is looking forward and foretelling the future, except the guy who wrote it is looking back and describing history, but he makes it sound as if this is Noah or Moses or someone looking ahead and describing the future. So that so, somehow is supposed to give it some sort of credibility. And then the last thing, about apocalyptic literature is that there was, it really called for no response. There was no ethical teaching or moral teaching saying you just have to do this and think this way and make sure you behave this way and do this. There wasn't any of that. It was simply for encouragement. Hey, hang on. The end is near and God is going to come through. 
So that's apocalyptic literature. But as I say, the book of Revelation is not strictly apocalyptic literature, and yet it shares some of these characteristics. For instance, supernatural revelations. Well, I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard and I saw behind me the Lord Jesus Christ. There he was. He saw a vision of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, I was in the throne room of heaven. So he absolutely got these supernatural revelations. There's a lot of symbolism in the Gospel of John. When it's Jesus, we see the lampstands and the stars. Well, those are symbolic of other things, and we need to understand that to read it well. We do see pessimism in the book of Revelation. If you've read it, you know there are really some difficult things. It's a very diff it describes a really, really difficult time on earth, a lot of death, a lot of suffering. So there is pessimism. But of course, as in apocalyptic literature, there is the triumph of God. So that's how the book of Revelation uh, is like apocalyptic literature. Now, there are aspects of that kind of literature that don't apply to Revelation. The first is it was written by John, and John didn't say, I'm Moses writing. He said, I'm John. So he wasn't trying to put a, put a pseudonym on it or anything like that or make it sound like it was written in the distant past. And so he didn't have to try to rewrite history or make it sound like he was looking ahead. That's not the way it worked. And again, in apocalyptic literature, no ethical teaching or no moral teaching. The book of Revelation, it's all through it actually. It talks about how we need to respond to God. It's how we need to respond to one another and respond to the situation that we're in. And so the book of Revelation is like apocalyptic literature, but it's not strictly. Now, the purpose of the book of Revelation was to encourage first century Christians to worship only God and to stay faithful to the end. If you want to um, sum up Revelation in a sentence, that's it. It was to encourage first century Christians to worship only God and to stay faithful to the end because they were in a terrible time of persecution. We talked about the fact that Nero started persecutions in the mid-60s, and this had continued on at this point. And so the church was going through a very, very difficult time. And the book of Revelation was written to say, yes, hang on, stay faithful to God, and yes, Jesus is returning. Now for us, the message is the same thing. Worship only God and stay faithful to Him. It's filled with all sorts of things that we're going to talk about now, but let's remember that's the main message of the book of Revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, as it says. Now, it was written by John, the, the uh, disciple, the apostle, the one who wrote the other books, and it was based on an actual vision that he had, a supernatural revelation that he had. Uh, and so again, it's not just something he made up, it is something that was given to him by God. And it deals with what could be severe persecution that these Christians were facing. And of course, it also uh, talks about the end times that are coming in the future. So John was talking to the first century Christians 2,000 years ago, and at the same time he was looking ahead, who knows how many thousands of years, to the end of the age. And so some of the things written in the book of Revelation have more than one fulfillment. Some of them have been fulfilled in the early church, but also they will be fulfilled again in the end times. I've mentioned this before in, an, in an, uh, I believe in the Gospels, in one of my, in the earlier sessions, talking about some Old Testament prophecies 
They were fulfilled in the Old Testament, but then also they are being fulfilled again in Christ. And some of them are being fulfilled again in the future as well. Now, like the Gospels, the book of Revelation is not specifically chronological. It's basically chronological. It, it ends with the end, for sure. Uh, but all of the various events that happen throughout the, the chapters, especially between chapter 6 and 19, more or less in chronological order, but not entirely. And uh, one way you can see this is you're probably familiar with the fact that there are seven seals. And you may remember there are seven uh, bowls of judgment and there are also seven trumpets. It's entirely possible to read it in such a way that all of those are identical events, that the bowls are the trumpets which are happening at the time of the seven seals as well. I'm not saying that that's the way it is, but it's, if you read it over and over again, you, you might start to get that impression. And so therefore, it's not as strictly in chronological order. So Revelation starts with seven letters to seven churches in Asia, which again is part of the Roman Empire of the time. These are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these are real churches, and they were facing real problems, and those letters describe the real problems in the churches. But of course, we can learn from all of them. So again, here, it was written not to us, but for us, because we can all face many of the difficulties and many of the issues that those churches were facing. We can fall into the same problems and temptations that they did. So it, it's helpful for us to stay out of that trouble. And then in chapter 4, then it happens, we are transported into the throne room of God. And this is one of a couple of biblical passages that describe what the throne room in the temple in heaven is like. The other most well-known one is Isaiah chapter 6, and many, many similarities. And what you see, really as much as anything, is you see the majesty, the overwhelming majesty of God, the overwhelming holiness of God. It just permeates the whole place, and what you see is worship, especially in the book of Revelation. You see this beautiful, beautiful worship that goes on and on and on. And so this is what goes on before the presence of God. Now this was followed, starting say in chapter 6, is followed by what appears to be events surrounding the end of the age. There tremendous judgment coming on the people of the earth. We see that over and over and over and over again. By the way, one of the reasons I say that the, the um, seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls might all be the same thing is they all talk about such huge destruction, it's hard to imagine that it happened all these different times. So it's entirely possible I was kind of telescoping uh, or taking that one event and sort of taking it apart and describing it in three different ways. There's great destruction. Some people stay true to God. Some people don't. We see that some people fall away. And then at the end of that, we see Babylon destroyed uh, and the lament going up for Babylon. And following that, Jesus returns. And this is, this is what we've been waiting for. Jesus returns and he destroys all of the forces that are against God. We, see, we, we read about a 1,000 year reign of peace by Jesus Christ. Then there's another battle. 
that God wages against the powers of darkness that, that are formed again, and that army gets destroyed like that. There, there, there are a couple of times uh, in the book of Revelation that we see the battle against good and evil, and what we see, it's no battle. It's no battle. We t we, in the battle of what we call Armageddon, we see hundreds of millions of people coming against the Lord and the church, essentially. And all this huge enemy army, and all it says is God wipes them out, and they're done. There really isn't a battle, because God is God, and He is so much greater than, than evil. That, that, that alone should encourage us. And then after that comes what we call the great white throne judgment, and every creature is judged. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, and Satan, and the beast, and all of those are thrown into the lake of fire. And those whose names are written in the book of life now enter into the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, because what we read uh, just before this is the old heavens and the old earth have fled away, they are destroyed, and the earth is remade, reformed, a new heavens and a new earth, and that will be our eternal dwelling place. By the way, we're not going to live in heaven forever, we're going to live on earth earth. It's a new version of earth, but we are going to be living on earth. Be a glorious thing. Now, of course, Revelation contains all sorts of wonderful symbols uh, and metaphors, uh, things like the slain lamb, right? The lamb that was slain. All the creatures around the throne, think of those creatures. They have, you know, four heads and they have eyes all over them. It's quite, a, quite an amazing description. We read about the beast, and the false prophet. We read about 666. And by the way, that number is 666. It's not a six and a six and a six. I've heard people uh, try to ascribe that, believe it or not, to Ronald Reagan, because all three of his names had six letters. Therefore, he is the Antichrist, 666. No, it's 666. Armageddon, as I mentioned before, that final fateful battle. We read about the lake of fire. We read about the new Jerusalem. We read about the seven seals and the trumpets and the bowls. The millennium, Babylon, 144,000. So all of these symbols come to mind when we think of the book of Revelation. Some of these we can identify with certainty. Uh, for instance, the slain lamb. That's Jesus, because the book of Revelation describes the slain lamb. We read about the dragon and the serpent, and we can identify that certainly with Satan, the devil, because that's exactly what the book of Revelation tells us. But there are a number of things that we cannot identify. The beast and the false prophet. People love to try to identify the beast. They're not here now, so you're not going to be identifying them. 666, what does that mean? We don't know now. We do not know at this point. The seven seals, what are they? What are they going to look like? What's going to happen? Well, we get an image of what's going to happen, but we don't really know what that means. The millennium, what exactly does that mean? Who is Babylon? Why, why, was it, why did it have to be destroyed? So these are some of the things that we can't really fully understand. Now, I know, and I know full well that it is interesting and fun to try to figure all these things out, isn't it? You want to know, who is the Antichrist? What nation is he from? And who is the beast? Is it the Roman Empire resurrected again? Is it this and is it that? We want to know, 666, okay, we look all over everywhere. It's going to be on our forehead or on the back of our hand. What does that mean? And we, we try to identify things in our current day, our current year and month and day to see, okay, that must be what that is. 
But really, we shouldn't be spending all our time doing that. I think it's easy to spend way too much time trying to figure out all of these things that are, in a sense, a code or a symbol of what's going to happen. And if we do that, you know what? We're missing the point of the whole book. The, whole, the point of the book is worship God. Worship God and stay faithful to him to the end. And yes, I, I understand that we may some of these things, see some of these things fulfilled in our lives and we want to know them, we want to understand it. I'm not saying we don't have to pay attention to it, but let's pay attention to the main theme of the book, worship God. Revelation is a book about worship. More than any other book except the book of Psalms, the book of Revelation is a worship book. So let's see this as our invitation to worship God. And look at it this way. You and I have no control over the events that we read in the book of Revelation. They are going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it because God prophesied it. It's going to happen. Some of it has happened. Some of it's going to happen. I can't control that. I have no control over it. What I have control over is my participation. What am I going to do between now and then, and if I do experience some of those events, what will be my part in that? That's what I can control. That's what we should be setting our sights on, setting our focuses on. We are living the Christian life today in the here and now. Let's just be good stewards of what God has given us. Very good. So that, again, in a nutshell, a brief nutshell, is the book of Revelation. So as we come now to the conclusion of our series of the overview of the New Testament, if you've been with us through all eight sessions, you know it's gone, you know, sort of like a whirlwind covering everything we can possibly cover in a short period of time. Uh, absolutely, I get that. It probably feels that way. I know I've left out all sorts of things that you might find very important. I left out all sorts of things that I think are important too. But this idea was not to go into detail, but just to get the big picture. So I just want to go back and do a very brief review of what we've seen. The New Testament is the completion of the Old Testament. It finishes the story of the Old Testament. And of course, perhaps more importantly, it introduces us to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We are introduced to him, his person, his nature, his character, and his work. It also introduces us to the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in us and in the church today. It describes the growth and the, well, the birth, the growth and the development of the early church. It teaches us about the spiritual realities that God has made available for us in Jesus Christ. And then it also teaches us how we are to respond to those realities, how we can order our lives to best cooperate with God and walk in the path he has for us. Of course, it does tell us of things to come and how best we are to prepare for that. But most of all, it presents God as our all-loving, all-powerful Heavenly Father, and it encourages us to live our lives to glorify Him. So thanks so much for being with me through this overview of the New Testament. Our hope and our prayer here at Mile 2 Church is that this isn't just information for you, it's not just something on a page that's okay, that's cool, but we hope that it helps develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that it strengthens your walk with God so that that can affect your life every day. That's our hope and our prayer. So thanks so much. God bless you.